0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters, spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More. Where we strive to discover more through intentional dialogues. My name is
1: Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast will serve as a space to exchange ideas from the collective experience. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is going to be Anoop Singh. Anoop and I grew up in the same hometown playing soccer together. took about five years hiatus, if you want to call it, and then reemerged in Philly, and we've been friends and working out ever since. So, Anoop, how's it going today?
2: Good. Thank you guys for having me on.
1: Yeah, of course. Really excited for you to be here, uh, share your story and, you know, your wide-ranging experiences. So, do you think you could start us off? Just introduce yourself, kind of tell the guests, you know, where you went to school, what you've been studying, and what you're up to right now.
2: Sure. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, so, my name's Anoop. Uh, like Aiden said, I'm from outside of Philadelphia, uh, went to school with Aiden um, outside in the suburbs and then went to school here in the city at Penn, studied physics and biophysics um, for my undergrad and masters, and then briefly had a stint on the West Coast doing my PhD in bioengineering at UCLA um, before taking an indefinite leave to work full-time on uh, what I'm doing now, which is my startup company, Inimed. Um, my background has primarily been uh, in the sciences and engineering, um, but as I've been working on the startup, I have definitely gained a lot more skills on the business side as well.
1: Great. Do you think you could just unfold what Inamed does, kind of what the business is doing currently, kind of where that idea came from?
2: Sure, yeah. So uh, at Inamed, we're developing a connected at home blood testing device for monitoring patients with chronic conditions. So if you're familiar with someone who has diabetes, they typically need to have a glucometer to monitor their glucose levels, to dose insulin, uh, to make sure they stay healthy. Uh, What we're trying to develop is a similar type of device for other chronic conditions that are more complex, like heart failure, organ transplant, where the markers that you need to monitor are more difficult uh, to test for, but are also just as crucial for being able to optimize therapies in patients. And so Intimed gets started when uh, my co-founder and I were working in the same... Uh, diagnostics Laboratory um, at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, we're working on developing smartphone-based uh, diagnostic devices uh, to monitor things like traumatic brain injury on the sidelines for uh, NFL and, and soccer, being able to allow for early detection of diseases like pancreatic cancer, which have you know significantly better uh, outcomes if you catch them earlier, um, and really focusing on developing these portable tools that could really improve human health. And one of the drawbacks that we really saw initially in the laboratory that sparked us to start Inamed was that a lot of the research that's done in the academic setting is primarily focused on publishing papers, but not truly developing products that can uh, be used by patients or physicians um, or uh, other types of of healthcare professionals. And so we took our experience uh, in the lab from our experience at Penn, and sort of translated that to uh, working on Inimed, where we you know, follow the same thesis of being able to develop these portable devices, but really focused on better understanding the patient-physician uh, issues that are associated with um, you know, management of, of therapies. And, and for example, in heart failure, um, we you know, recently saw this study that came out um, and were told by some physicians um, at a recent conference that less than 1% of, of heart failure patients are on guideline-directed therapy, And what that means, basically, is less than 1% of these patients are on optimal medication. And so, as a result, it leads to uh, significant hospital readmissions, Um, and, you know, as you know, heart disease is one of the leading causes of of death in the U.S. So, being able to, you know, slowly improve uh, outcomes through these more decentralized technologies, like our device uh, at Intimed, is our ultimate goal.
1: Yeah, I love it, and it seems like that strategy is going to do a number of good to a wide range of a population. Because I know type two diabetes is something that's you know kind of currently plaguing the world right now. So there's no doubt that'll serve a lot of people. And I think you mentioned a kind of interesting juxtaposition of the way medical is being treated right now, right? So the research papers versus kind of accessible decentralized technologies. What do you think's driving that change? Is it just kind of the way the industry operates? And then are you noticing a shift outside of that? Like people kind of waking up to the needing a more accessible technology? Like, is that a shift that's going across on across the medical industry?
2: Yeah, I would say, um, I think one of the big things is sort of how the healthcare industry is shifting a little bit more from fee for service, um, which basically means that uh, physicians will get paid every time they're treating patients rather than based on the outcomes. Um, and it's shifting towards what's called value based where uh, physicians are paid like a lump sum and they get to keep as much as they can out of that based on the outcomes that they're um, providing for patients. And so if you think about the value based model versus fee for service, if you can keep patients at home while still being able to monitor them, um, it's much lower cost than having them visit the hospital many times. And there's plenty of studies that have shown that the more times people visit the hospital, the worse their outcomes are. And so I think one of the big shifts there that we're seeing in healthcare is moving more from fee-for-service to value-based. The other thing you know touched upon about sort of the research laboratories, I think, unfortunately, it's very dependent on the professor who's running that lab. So for example, at UCLA when I was there um, just for a quarter, um, I was able to see, you know, based on my advisors there, the much more entrepreneurial focus and savviness um that these professors had compared to some of the folks i worked with um, at penn and i think you know that's that just sort of comes down to the person because as a professor your incentives first and foremost are to publish um, because that's what gets you tenure that's what you know you keep your job um, and are able to sort of use that as a currency for success Um, but then there are professors who are more on the savvy side and and they're really wanted to push the boundaries and Publications are not good enough for them. They want to actually be able to develop tools, startup companies. And so, um, even though at UCLA I was only there for a short time, that experience was really, you know, really pushed me to work on Intermed full time. And in fact, the vice chair there was the one who said, you know, this is a really good opportunity. You should work on it full time. Uh, when we uh, decided to do that, when we received funding um, from a group called Y Combinator in Silicon Valley.
0: So that is actually a great transition. So I want to uh, pull your back a little bit back into your UCLA days. So, of course, University of Pennsylvania as an undergrad is an extremely a uh, great accomplishment. Of course, uh, embarking continuously onto the next chapter at PhD program at UCLA, which is even a step above achievement, right? So, of course, you talked briefly about some of the gaps and the experiences which made you or enabled you to start this year full-time uh, your hobby slash passion plus career as a startup founder. Uh, could you talk, talk a little bit more about experience back in UCLA, what that was like, and what were the triggers or the catalysts that uh, truly finalized that decision to leave UCLA indefinitely to do what you do now?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, when I was going through my undergrad and you know, closer towards the end, after I was you know, finishing both my undergrad and master's, um, I was pretty sad on going to grad school. I didn't really put a ton of thought into it. It was kind of just the next thing. That's what everyone in my Uh, cohort in my majors were doing, and so um, I kind of just, you know, submitted the applications, and was pretty interested in in working on the research, but it wasn't something I put a lot of thought into, and at the time, uh, I was working on the startup with my co-founder more as a project than, you know, anything that we were seriously considering working on full-time, and so we'd entered some competitions at Penn, um, you know, did okay in some, didn't do well in others, but it was a very good learning experience, and we also spent the summer, uh, after I graduated, working full time um, in a small incubator program out in Colorado, um, where we, you know, got a small amount of funding, um, got a chance to sort of experience the, the first taste of living as an entrepreneur. We lived in a basement at an Airbnb, um, where we only had a microwave. Um, nice. <laughs> so, you know, still managed to, you know, eat healthy, but it was definitely harder. Um, and then uh, from there, in that that September, this was in twenty sixteen. I went and uh, started my uh, program at UCLA and he was still back at Penn and we're, you know, working on the company, um, you know, here and there, but I think we quickly realized that balancing both school and also working in the company, it was sort of bringing both of those down and we had to sort of decide what we really wanted to do, which one was the way we wanted to move forward. And so we applied to a couple um, more uh, prestigious accelerator programs out in Silicon Valley one biology focused, one just general technology focused, um, and both of us were you know pretty set that if we want to make this you know successful company, um, we need to work on it full time. And if we get funding from one of these groups, we'll you know hop in and, and go for that. Um, initially, you know the idea was that we would be taking a leave from our programs. That obviously changed from, you know from there. Uh, but you know UCLA was uh, it was a short experience, but it was really good. I got to meet a lot of great people. Grad school is. Uh, is a lot of fun, at least initially, um, based on my experience. Um, but I would say my mindset was still focused on what we could do to, you know, get intimate to the next level. And so when we were accepted into um, Y Combinator, which is an accelerator program uh, in Silicon Valley, basically they give you um, about $150,000 for uh, a stake in your company. And, uh, and they're extremely well known. You know, they've been the first investor in companies like Airbnb. Dropbox, Instacart, Reddit, um, a lot of companies now, I think at this point the market cap of companies they funded is over 100 billion. Um, so it was kind of a no-brainer for us to, to go through that. And I think that was sort of the first um, catalyzing step in, in our startup, being able to get to the next stage, uh, really you know, taking that leap. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a sure decision that we were gonna be staying on, working on the company full time. Um, after that, we knew that you know the funding would last at least you know six months, and then we were hopefully going to be raising some more funding after the program. Um, but even then, we weren't necessarily sure that this was the thing we wanted to you know spend the next however many years of our life doing. But it was something we were both very passionate about, um, and slowly grew into that as being what is now our full time uh, jobs.
0: So you kind of gloss over a little bit, and I understand that white collaterals they. They generate a lot of successful companies now from initial startup stage like Airbnb, Dropbox, that you mentioned. And but I'll, I'm interested a little bit more about that process how you were accepted into that very, I would argue, the most prestigious uh funding venue in Silicon Valley, right? And after that, your decision making process because it, this reminds me of the book called Originals How Non Conformists Change the World. It talks about a lot of these amazing companies now they went through a lot of risk, risk assessments and uh, decision-making. Because I think the misconception that uh, many people have about entrepreneurs is, oh, they just made this very hastened, rash decision, and they just dropped out of school and went full-time into this their career, their company, right? But the book talks about how that is not the case. If you look at Bill Gates, and he, people think he just dropped out of Harvard to start up his company. The thing is, he, uh, he actually took a leave of absent first. Uh, while in school, before he decided to uh, take an indefinite leave, because there's a lot of uh, decision process and a lot of risk assessment goes behind uh, these decision makings. And the book also talks about most successful entrepreneurs actually very risk averse. They're not risky at all, and they it's they it's called calculated risk, right? And so we would love to hear more about that process of yours. What kind of calculated risk you thought about? You calculated, you thought through, and the process of how you got admitted into that organization.
2: Yeah, so I think for us, uh, the process, basically, um, there's two cohorts for, for Y Combinator per year, one in the winter from January to March, and then one uh, in the summer, I believe, uh, from August until October. Um, and so we applied in October for the following winter, which was in 20, winter of 2017. Um, basically, the process, you submit an application that you know, talks a lot about your company, your founding team, your experience, um, and then if you do get an interview, um, they fly you out to Silicon Valley from wherever their companies are flying in from India, from, uh, from England, everywhere, and for a 10 minute interview. So you have 10 minutes um, to be able to uh, answer a bunch of questions that they'll throw at you. Uh, in that time, in our case, um, because we are developing a physical product, they wanted us to demo uh, what we had of the product, which was very bare bones. Uh, but they wanted to see the concept, they wanted to see that this, you know, the team behind this would be able to actually, you know, build this product to, um, you know, to its final stage. Uh, And so we, you know, flew out there, uh, demoed the product on on one of the uh, partners who was interviewing us, and basically they'll make the decision and they'll either call you that evening if you get in, or they will send you an email if you don't get in and explain sort of why you didn't. Um, And so actually it was funny because um, uh, our team, we're all, you know, big uh, basketball fans. And so Um, we had decided that, regardless, we were going to go to the Warriors game that evening. Uh, It was uh, the first time that, uh, for basketball fans out there, that uh, Kevin Durant was playing against Russell Westbrook after he left Oklahoma City. Um, So that was, you know, for us, we were like, might as well take advantage of this opportunity. And uh, we got the call from them while we were at the Warriors game um, that we had gotten accepted to the program, uh, which made it, you know, that much sweeter. And so... Um, you know for us it was we had all decided beforehand that if we'd gotten accepted we were definitely going to do it um, whether that meant we were gonna uh, drop out of our programs we, we hadn't made those decisions yet but one of the really you know key things was like you talked about calculated risk was most companies who go through that program are able to successfully raise uh, at least a seed round of funding right after just because of the you know the pedigree the investor draw that they're able to bring um, and essentially the stamp of approval of you getting in there um, because all the partners um, of that program are successful founders in our case the the two mentors we had for that program one of them was um, the founder of the company called scribed from you know online books um, the other one was the guy who created Gmail he was a 23rd employee at mm-hmm. Google um, also created a company called friend feed which is why we have the like button on Facebook um, so you know some really successful entrepreneurs who are um, you know basically giving their time Uh, to be able to mentor, you know, early companies and for us not only was it that experience and the funding But it was also the network that you get. Um, So in our cohort there were um, People who were like us first-time entrepreneurs. There were people who had already developed and sold companies for billions of dollars Um, so really being able to have that uh, network not only of people in your cohort, but also uh, alumni we you know got to have speakers come and you know every uh, every week from Airbnb, the founders came, WhatsApp, Shopify, um, a lot of these companies and, and be able to sort of share their experience with us. Um, I think that in itself, the, the network was something which, you know, still to, to this day, we're still leveraging significantly. Um, and I think all of those benefits really, you know, when compared to what we we're doing currently, um, we saw would significantly improve the trajectory of the company and also us personally in our careers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the network of such a high profile network of entrepreneurs is basically invaluable, especially in such a startup atmosphere. So you did mention that you got mentors from this specific uh, program. What did that mentorship process kind of look like? Did they help you with the funding or kind of just starting a company in general, as well as what are some of the biggest lessons that you learned through that mentorship process?
2: Yeah, so um, I think one of the big lessons we learned is like, doesn't matter really what discipline your company is in, whether it's in biotech like ours or you know healthcare uh, or a pure technology company. When you're at the early stage of a company and developing it, you're tackling a lot of the same problems, um, and so that's sort of why even though both of our mentors um, in that program were both technology background people um, and founded technology companies. Um, they were able to give us very uh, helpful and concrete advice not only about you know things we should focus on developing the company but also for fundraising how we you know approach that process because it's very much an art Um, you know there's many companies that may not have the best business model or or all of these things but they're able to raise a lot of money because the strategies that they're doing um, you know work well and and they end up figuring out how to be successful uh, later on down the line and so for us really understanding that process which is something we had no experience in. Uh, I think that was very helpful and even down the line now they've started creating um, these programs um, for, so the seed round is what we raised then, they've started creating uh, cohorts as part of Y Combinator for Series A companies, growth companies, uh, to really help you, know, you keep that mentorship and also be able to be successful because ultimately they're your first investor and if you're successful they will be extremely successful. Um, just given that they're, you know, investing at a relatively lower valuation. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think for us that, that mentorship was, was very helpful. The other thing was the way it's broken down, you're in different cohorts. Um, so there's about a hundred to 150 companies uh, per batch and you're broken into about seven different groups, each one with two of these partners who are mentors. And even within your group, um, you get to meet a lot of great uh, companies and people. So there were people in our group who, you know, had done medical device companies before and had, you know, backgrounds whether they're physicians or uh, researchers. And and so we were able to also get feedback and help from them, whether it's connections, whether it's you know just they've gone through some FDA processes, they've gone through some of the same issues that we had gone through um, in their previous companies. And so. Leveraging not only the partners themselves and their experience, but also uh, our peers was very helpful. And there's a lot of people who we're still close with, um, you know, till now, uh, who, when we go out to SF, or some of them are even here in Philadelphia, building companies of, of all different shapes and sizes. So, um, yeah, I think that combination of, of having sort of the partners and also. Um, the peers and the people you work with, and the network you ultimately are able to have access to, um, has been you know truly a huge uh, part of what's made our company successful.
0: Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Uh, so obviously, I've heard about what the Y Combinators is and what they represent, and the sort of mission statement they have is to help uh, kickstart a lot of like future great startups, right? But I don't really know too much about it. So it's kind of cool that you were able to uh, help unveil some of the insider scoop. And it makes sense their name is combinator so to combine and to combinate all the great uh, minds and talents and creating this like network that fosters our relationship but yeah it sounds like a pretty encompassing experience for you so can we talk a little bit more about like the startup dynamic so of course you come with the bio disciplinary right and you're the bio side of the startup uh, can you talk about your other co-founder like what his disciplinary is and what that startup dynamic is
2: yeah, so uh, my other co-founder, um, his background is on the uh, engineering side. So he did bioengineering, I did biophysics. Um, so my background is a little bit more on the sciences and his is more on the product development, uh, engineering. And, and since then we've sort of been able to you know, stratify who does what uh, in different areas. He manages a lot of the finance, legal. Um, I do a lot of the uh, you know, partnerships um, and uh, you know, also in the lab on the science side. Um, But really, you know, at this stage, both of us um, ask each other for advice for a lot of different parts. And there's a lot of overlap in our roles, whether it's even just sending certain emails to people, having us read each other's stuff over, making sure that um, we don't catch, you know, we catch anything that might be uh, a red flag. Um, And I think that's sort of maybe a little less traditional than how other companies might be. But I think for us, both of us bring, um, you know, different strengths. I would say he's a little bit more... Practical about certain things, but I'm also I think a little bit more tenacious about um, You know if we want to get something done, you know, just trying to find every avenue to to do that And so I think we make a good team there. We you know, we work together um, now for about three years Um, We also live together for um, I think about a year and a half to two years um, at a variety of different places, um, you know, Colorado Silicon Valley uh, even here in Philly for a year Um, so we have a, a really good relationship both as friends and also um as co-founders, but we also weren't initially friends when we had started the company. We we met, you know, working in the same lab. And I think that was important because it allows us to be able to be pretty transparent as well. Um we've built up that friendship, but I think a lot of times, and you know, I have friends who have started companies uh, with friends and it's sort of gone south because a lot of times it's hard for you to separate that um, that friendship of someone you're you're really close with, it's hard for you to be direct about. Uh, certain things, whether you don't think they're pulling their weight or you don't think that they're doing something correctly um, because you don't want to you know, jeopardize that friendship. And for us, because that friendship built out after we'd started the company, um, it really helped us in being able to be direct about things that we you know, wanted to discuss um, and you know, continues to, to you know, do that even till now.
0: It's interesting that you talked about, so in your case, between you and your co-founder, your expertise is the foundation of your partnership. And a lot of times, like you alluded to, for a lot of startups or a lot of companies, the foundation is friendship. We could create that tension and disparities or disconnections in a lot of cases, right? And it's kind of similar to like Aiden and my partnership as co-hosts, because we have different delegations of different tasks. Uh, he's in charge of social media and uh, different things. I'm in charge of editing and different things. And we obviously create those delegation through trials and arrows, through different partnerships, and through just working together collaboratively. And of course, you operate on a, a lot much higher caliber level than we are as just doing podcast. So do you think your delegation of task between you and him as one practical, one you who's more tenacious and willing to hit wherever it takes, the venues, right? So h- how did the delegation work? Did it come afterwards or come before you guys just knew right away you're more fitted for this role versus that?
2: It sort of came out naturally. Um, I think both of us... Uh we're doing a lot of the same things and then we sort of figured out who was better at one thing or the other. Um, and also who liked doing one thing or another, because obviously you're doing stuff you like, um, then you typically will do it better. Um, in our case, I think like there are definitely a lot of companies, which I think probably, um, are, you know, the more they delegate, then probably the more successful they're able to be because the founders just don't have to worry about certain things because they have that trust in their co-founder. You know, in our case, I think we have that strong level of trust, but we also want to just be able to run things by each other, and you know for that reason we um, you know still have some areas where we want to be able to you know hop on calls you know for different things whether it's regulatory whether it's repair. But I think it also comes down to like both of us and our, our philosophy, which you know, we were talking about before this podcast about the lifelong learner aspect, being able to you know both of us have backgrounds in the sciences and engineering. We were not. Really exposed to a lot of things about you know how the healthcare system works, um, how the regulatory process works, um, you know even the details of getting a medical product through, what the quality systems that you need to have in place, um, hiring people, how you go about that, the interview process, firing people, um, which is one of the hardest things uh, I think for, for first-time entrepreneurs. Um, and so you know in our case, uh, being able to you know have a lot of these roles sort of overlap allows us to be well-informed about what the other person is working on and also just be able to learn that because both of us very much want to be able to learn a lot of these things because whether it's going to be applicable for Intimed um, or the next thing that we end up doing, um, having that knowledge um, is something we both just strive to have. So, you know, we've continued to do that model since.
1: Yeah, it sounds like you guys having, being on the same page, both in terms of mindset and trust and just kind of the overall strategy to approaching it definitely, does a lot of good for the leadership of the company, but as you guys are kind of expanding and potentially giving that vision to employees beneath you or expanding your teams, what do you look for or how do you strategize building a team that you know would make Intamed successful in the long term?
2: Yeah, so I think uh, for us um, at this stage for Intamed, um we're primarily on the, the product development side. So a lot of research and development scientists are hiring, a lot of engineers um both on you know the embedded systems or software and so you know for us i think at a high level my co-founder manages a lot of the product development stuff so any type of engineering role that we're looking to hire for he takes the lead on that and then you know if that person looks good we have them come in for an in person and we both sit down with them um and maybe we also will loop in another employee depending on that particular role Um, on the science side i primarily will you know take the first step in interviewing and finding the right people and then when we bring them in, we both will talk to them. So the final decision-making process is, is primarily going to be, you know, unanimous. Um, but being able to do the sourcing of those people, uh, just because of our expertise and, and really understanding how to find those right people based on our experiences, um, is sort of how we how we go about that. And and as we sort of expand, we also have started doing a lot more. I think delegation of having, um, you know, certain members work as as teams, um, and then we all sort of you know get together and discuss whatever results or things like that now we have weekly team meetings on Mondays and Fridays um, and are really able to then just you know keep everyone in the loop of what's going on because for a product like ours it's very integrated so the engineering side is very much dependent on the science side and you know how we design the science is very much you know dependent on what engineering constraints we have so making sure both groups are very well informed of what limitations there are what performance metrics we need to hit—all uh, of those things are, are very, you know, interchangeable at the moment. But as we move forward, I think that sort of delegation of roles will continue to, um, you know, be pushed outward, and, and will you know, become more siloed in, in certain applications.
0: Could we? <clears throat> sorry, we should have asked this question earlier. Can you kind of deconstruct the meaning or the idea or the intention behind the, your, the name of the startup in
2: Yeah, there's not a whole lot that goes into it um, in this case. Uh, So when my co-founder and I were were getting started, um, we were, you know, we thought of it as being something like innovative in in medicine. Um, And uh, I think he had searched, you know, a couple, um, you know, inomed or inomed or things like that. And uh, and we just sort of picked which one the domain was available. Um, (laughs) So so nothing that deep, um, unfortunately. But uh, that's sort of how it just came about, and then it kind of just you know, stuck with us um, and uh, and because it's, you know, one of the, the key things both my Combinator talks about, but also um, I think from a practical standpoint, you want to try and get the domain uh, for your, your company and you want to try and just get that to be the sort of main brand out there because um, that way people will be able to find you easily um, Where and, and down the line it'll just be, you know, you'll have a lot more control there. Whereas, a lot of companies, I think, who start off with certain names, when they start getting bigger, then they end up having some sort of, you know, infringement issues or, um, you know, some company patent trolls will come about. And, and so it just leads to more headaches. In our case, we didn't put a ton of thought into the name, but, um, you know, I think it's it's obviously stuck with us. Um, so we do at this point, you know, kind of like it. Um, there may be a rebranding in the future um, to make it a little bit more specific to what we're doing, um, but at the moment... Um, that's just kind
1: of how it came about. Yeah, I love it. I mean, innovation and medicine kind of combines the two very seamlessly. Like, it makes sense of that's what, you know, the almost the goal of medicine seems like. Like, a lot of companies are starting to innovate and look for ways that are more seamless. And I guess to what you alluded to earlier, uh, prevention rather than actually solving it on the back end like if you can just prevent the illness or the disease up front you don't have to spend all of that back uh back work or you know extra money extra time on the hospital side is that kind of a general theme you're seeing across the medicinal industry like you said you started off as science but kind of as you're glimpsing into the healthcare world is that kind of a general theme you're seeing
2: yeah i think definitely there's you know a ton of companies now in focus really on the prevention side so you have a lot of especially in the cancer space um, which is an area where um, over a number of different types of cancers the earlier you can detect it significantly um, better prognosis and so in our case um, we've sort of taken a middle ground uh, in our approach because of the way the incentives are aligned currently with the payer structure and how insurance companies um, you know, pay for these types of technologies. So one of the difficulties with, with prevention in areas outside of cancer um, is that there's not a ton of data to show if you do certain types of testing or things much earlier on, um, it will lead to better results on the back end. Like for example, going to you know have a, a yearly annual doctor visit, that's kind of established, but there isn't a ton of data to show whether that actually makes a, an improvement in the outcome. Um, and so when you're trying to introduce like more complicated things like at home testing for example um, it's a little harder to really focus on the prevention side and so what we've done is sort of taken a middle ground in that our target population um, and i'll talk about heart failure and organ transplant as examples are patients who have um, already been diagnosed um, with these conditions and may have just had an acute event in heart failure or in, in organ transplant have just had a transplant and so For heart failure, an acute event basically means that they um, had some sort of decompensation. In in this case, they were retaining too much fluid. Um, And so what we're trying to do is, you know, in that period where they're um, unstable, be able to allow the physicians to get frequent data on their uh, blood levels, so their kidney function and electrolytes, to be able to optimize the the dosing of their therapy. And so a lot of companies in the space are really focused on, all right, how can we, detect early that a patient is decompensating, but the issue with that all those technologies is that once you're able to detect that, you, you know then what do you do? And that's, that's like a little bit of a, a chicken and egg problem, but that's sort of um, an issue. What we're trying to do is take an even step back and say, why are these patients getting readmitted so frequently? And, and one of the things it really comes down to is that they're not getting you know, the right medication doses. And if you don't have the right medication doses, that are tailored to you and to your experience and and you as a patient, um, then it's not going to be that effective. And so what we're trying to do is enable providers to get more frequent safety data in the form of blood test data to be able to optimize their therapy. So you're able to get, instead of 1% of patients in guideline-directed therapy, you're able to get 50 or, you know, ideally even all patients. Um, And it's it's not something that is, um, you know, it's not like these therapies are very expensive or hard to come by. It's more that being able to uh, have access to a lot more of this data will allow physicians to be uh, much more um, confident and feel safer about how they're managing patients. The same way in organ transplant, where you have patients on average after they get a transplant in the first year, they probably will require 50 tests uh, for their drug levels. And so um, being able to allow them to do that at the home setting, um, have that data quickly fed back to the physician is not only really important for the outcomes but also quality of life because a lot of patients who get these transplants are not that old um, and so if you think about when you have to go into blood test you guys, you know, we're all working jobs here 9 to 5 and so if you had to go, you know, every Monday at 12 or, you know, at 12 and then, you know, the next on Wednesday and Friday uh, initially and, and have to sort of leave in the middle of work and come back it's, it's really inconvenient and especially for, you know, transplant drugs they require very specific timed tests, um, like 12 hours after you take the drug. And so being able to uh, make it more convenient for the patient so that they're more adherent um, and are able to, to have you know better outcomes. Because then at the end of the day, if you have an organ transplant and, and you reject the organ, there's not really much other options, um, whether it's for kidney, you have dialysis, but for the other conditions, it's, it's pretty grim. Um, so being able to really help empower patients um, while also empowering providers to be able to make the changes, do the monitoring that they want to be able to do, and um, which they know will be able to help patients.
0: Because I think your mission statement and your service model boils down to being preventive versus reactive. But of course, being, prevent, uh, being able to prevent certain things from happening is better than uh, reacting aftermath. But I think it's funny because in capitalism, it is this hideous idea that you know it's about treating if someone, it's the idea that someone has diabetes, right? And then being capitalistic means you know all these medicines and all these things too but you're making money off of people who are dying right you're you're literally making money you're profiting off of destruction and so i and a lot of times it's of course going to be more effective if you were to prevent diabetes versus reacting and trying to treat diabetes by incurring all these costs and all these inconveniences you alluded to but there's a lot of stigmas and uh, conception that healthcare is this very dark space And I'm sure there's dark sides into healthcare, just like any other sectors and industries. Uh, What are some of those that you've seen? Is healthcare truly as dark as what the mainstream media and the world portrays it as to be? Or is it actually not that? And could you share some of your insider scoop from um, your your process trying to penetrate through healthcare?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there are a lot of dark aspects of it, Um, unfortunately, you alluded to, you know, diabetes for example insulin prices if you look at insulin prices here in the u.s versus other countries um you know it's just a simple molecule but it costs you know maybe like 100x here what it costs in like india or somewhere else and so um you think about how does the same thing cost as much and how are people you know in the u.s which is considered a very modernized country how are people um you know dying from having diabetes when this is something we have a cure for and at least in terms of being able to uh, moderately treat the the condition and and keep you stable rather than, you know, completely cure it. But I think um, that's one aspect of healthcare. I think another aspect which, um, you know, may seem like a no-brainer to many people, but has been hard to penetrate is telemedicine. So the idea that being able to uh, communicate remotely with a a physician, um, whether it's, Um, for an elderly patient, whether it's for someone like me or you, or who wants to talk about something that we'd rather not have to go in, you know, to the hospital uh, or, you know, clinic to be able to talk about um, because we have busy lives or because it's a sensitive subject, Um, you know, things like that. um, You know, there is, you know, starting to be some growth uh, for telemedicine, which is good, but it's, for many years, it's been something where the payers just really haven't been um, as keen on on supporting it. And, And really, because, Even though it makes a lot of sense there just haven't been the the large-scale studies for certain things that need to be done and i think now it's sort of as the administration um specifically around medicare and some of the folks who are working there now um, have become a little bit more progressive about some of these issues we're seeing a little bit more progress but even for a device like ours which you know at home blood testing you know you sort of ask anyone and like oh I'd, i'd rather you know do a test that um, just requires like a finger stick level of blood rather than getting a whole t- you know set of tubes drawn seems you know very simple but to get something like that you know into the market and, and being used by patients you know for us not only requires going through FDA which is a very important aspect but really then after that doing a lot of studies to show to payers that we are going to be saving you money this is going to improve patient outcomes um and, and it's not you know matter of like you know as sad as it is patient quality of life is a lot more towards the bottom um, than actually how much money is going to be saved or how much you know additional revenue is going to be made. And so I think that aspect of, of the healthcare system compared to in other countries where there are quality adjusted life years that are looked at um, when it, you know evaluating a, a medical technology, where government might pay for you know certain technologies for small populations um, who have rare diseases because they know it's going to make a big impact for them even though they're going to have to spend money on it. I think you know those are the areas where it's it's a little darker here, and then you know you can go you know even more in depth, in depth into sort of the pharmaceutical industry and, and how drugs are priced. and We will get into that now, but I think that's <laughs> certainly if a, you want. It, that's certainly a, a very controversial issue as well, which I think um, you know makes makes us think about um, you know how is a company you know a country like ours um, you know we don't have uh, many people have access to healthcare. I mean I think that's sort of like a fundamental. I think everyone should have. And unfortunately, um, that lack of access is, uh, it's sad to see.
1: What do you think is the driving force behind that? Because <clears throat> I personally work for a managed care organization who does Medicare and Medicaid specifically. So that's the idea is to get healthcare around at a lower cost because, you know, there should be no reason that you're going bankrupt for just basic health coverage. Do you think it's like a, a s- systemic issue, the fact that there's so much financial interest invested in healthcare companies or where do you think that disconnect comes from?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think just the financial, you know, interests in the whole industry, I think from insurance companies to pharma companies, um, I think, you know, and you were talking about the capitalism aspect of it. I think like that certainly is a, you know, a big aspect of of what's happening in the healthcare system. And and we are slowly moving more towards the value-based side of things. And we have a lot of you know, candidates now who are talking about more hybrid models or a Medicare for all model, which is moving in that, you know, right direction, um, and healthcare is really being brought to the forefront of, um, a lot of today's political issues, um, as it rightly should, um, but I think we're still a bit of a ways away from being able to, um, you know, really move the needle because it's not just one, you know, healthcare as an industry has a lot of different moving parts, um, and there's a lot of groups that have a lot of financial interests. Um, And then you think about also a lot of these companies, uh, whether it's insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies, a lot of them are public, so you have, you know, a a huge number of shareholders who are incentivized for them to, you know, maintain whatever prices and, and, you know, whatever earnings that they're being able to achieve. And so I think it's going to be a long process, but I think things have been, uh, I think with the latest issues that people are bringing up about potential alternative models and, and, and the way certain new codes are being accepted um, by Medicare and other organizations. I think it is moving in the right direction, um, but you there's know, still a lot to solve.
1: Absolutely. And just kind of out of hypothetical sense, because I know obviously fitness and health, that's one thing that we've been doing together a lot is something that's important to you and looking around at the landscape of what healthcare looks like, like type two diabetes is generally fairly lifestyle oriented, right? So type one, you inherit in genetics, type two generally, lifestyle based. Considering you know you're pretty familiar with the regulations and how that healthcare kind of works, would it be kind of a value based model, or how could we encourage a more prevention based strategy rather than a uh, reactive strategy? Right.
2: Yeah. So one of the interesting things about type two diabetes compared to a lot of other conditions is actually that it's fairly reversible. Um, in, in a lot of patients. And so, as an example of another startup company, which is now sort of fairly well-developed, uh, it's called uh, Verda Health. Um, so they actually have this coaching program, basically, where they work with um, employers uh, and the employees of, you know, uh, uh, employer-covered insurances. Um, and they actually help with this reversal. Um, so they bring down, like, they've shown they can bring down HbA1c uh, levels, which is one of the key metrics for uh, diabetes uh, fasting glucose levels, um, and essentially in, in many patients being able to reverse, you know, diabetes. So if you have type 2 diabetes, a lot of these patients, you know, may not have it, you know, soon after based on these habits. Now, you know, how long those habits stay is, I think, to be seen. But I think, you know, the companies like that, there are new companies, uh, Lubongo, Omada Health, um, that have raised a lot of funding and are doing very well in the, in the diabetes space and being able to really uh, really, either you know, prevent um, people from having the onset, um, improve outcomes for people who already have the onset, or even reverse in in the case of like Berta. Um, And so I think that area is making a lot of progress, um, and it's a a huge opportunity, I think, both from a healthcare standpoint and also from a company standpoint to really uh, impact uh, change in in healthcare. But I think for a lot of these other conditions, um, they're a lot more complicated. Um, And so there's a lot more work that needs to be done and that's sort of one of the reasons why, um, you know, it's for our our product, it's one part of a full solution. Um, Mm -hmm. We ultimately want to be able to incorporate our own software and and other types of uh, learning algorithms to be able to really personalize, you know, treatment for patients, Um, but that will still take some time, especially for some of these more complex conditions where it's it's not really based on, you know, a couple different metrics like it might be in, in Type two diabetes, but I think uh, with a lot of these tech companies, there's a lot of progress being made in that area. And I think um, the the other main thing, which we you know probably will transition to as well, is also around um, just sort of education uh, about you know things that you should be eating um, and how that contrasts with our food industry and what they're telling people that you know they should be eating. And I think that you know misincentives. really caused a lot of issues um, with this, you know, these conditions. And I think if there was more alignment there, um, there could be a lot of prevention of, of these conditions.
0: So if you look at the current healthcare system, right? A, 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 our current model is service-based, where doctors get rewarded based on their services. Uh, if a doctor was to prescribe you medicine, you get paid, you get make commission based on the prescription. That's why I think the prescription epidemic is real, because I'm sure some doctors are doing, an unethical, I'm not sure, and you talked about you in met as part of a collective movement a vanguard to change the tide from service-based model to value-based or outcome-based which is of course better for the public and better for everyone and so ben shapiro has a famous saying talk about facts don't care about your feelings but i think reverse is also true feelings don't care about facts like talk about climate change for instance i believe almost everyone if you're not truly ignorant and if you're willing to listen, you know climate change is real, and you know we have to do something about climate change, right? And of course, the argument is, oh, like oil is our most valuable, um, you know, natural resources. But of course, it's uh, it's bad for the environment, all these consequences. But it, it's it's profitable; it benefits everyone on a financial uh, level, and therefore, a lot of times have that uh, persistent resistance against uh, going towards renewable energies and clean energies and so forth. So just because some people know it's good and it's the right thing to do that doesn't mean they're going to do it because feelings don't care about facts it's all about a lot of people my own opinion they care about short-term gains so can you talk about what are the challenges and how are you as part of this collective movement trying to change the tide and then the, create this paradigm shift in the healthcare industry
2: yeah i mean i think what we're trying to do is um sort of get the best of both worlds and that be able to Develop a product that is patient-centric, makes it easy for patients to be able to do, in this case, blood testing, and be able to uh, sort of have their medications titrated specifically to them um, based on their needs, while also creating a solution that's easy to use for physicians and makes their life easier, and for payers be you know is able to reduce costs. And I think that's something which is typically difficult in the healthcare system to to introduce these types of technologies because you need to satisfy all these different stakeholders. And typically, the incentives are not aligned. So what a physician wants is not always what a patient wants, which is not always want, you know, what a payer wants. And so I think trying to think about how our product can appease all these different groups. I mean, ultimately, if the payer is not going to pay for it, then it's not probably going to be successful. Um, but if a patient is not going to use it, then it's not going to be successful. If a physician doesn't want to adopt it, it's not going to be successful. So each of these stakeholders, we need to spend a lot of time really trying to understand what aspects of the product they like what they don't like and so actually um, later this year we're going to be doing a, a patient focused study in north carolina with one of our um, you know, physician advisors um, to really understand from a patient perspective how they would want to incorporate this into their life do they want to be able to do at home blood testing is this device easy enough for them to use what aspects do we need to change what aspects you know do they really like um, we also are going to be meeting with uh, CMS and other private payers uh, in Q1 of next year to really understand from a uh, payer perspective what aspects of this product do they like, what studies will we need to do to prove that we're able to reduce costs, you know, all of that stuff, able to improve guideline-directed therapy. And on the physician side, we've already done a lot of work with that. Um, the uh, Heart Failure Society of America conference was here. In Philadelphia in September, we got to meet a lot of really prominent folks in the space, um, and we're really uh, inspired and motivated to continue work on Intimed because of um, you know some of the excitement that they showed for this product and how really it could you know change the landscape for uh, for heart failure management.
0: So Anub, you talked about how you have to fulfill multitude of to appease multitude of layers like people, right? The physicians, the pairs, the patients, and you talked about you've been Receiving a lot of great uh, feedback and uh, perceived a lot of great, I guess, anticipation from physicians, which is exciting to hear. But what what is like the sales pitch strategy used to pitch your idea, try to penetrate into the this seemingly impenetrable industry?
2: Yeah. So I think um, you know, from our standpoint, it started off when we were going through through Y Combinator, just speaking with a ton of physicians to really understand which industries. This was before we even set out on certain industries. Which industries? might have use for a blood testing device that could do testing at home for a variety of different types of markers. And so one of the things that came up frequently was um, in heart failure, being a chronic condition, which affects like 6 million uh, people in the US uh, annually. And it was something where it wasn't exactly clear how it was tied in. But a lot of physicians said, like, if we could get you know this type of kidney function and electrolyte data, which we test often anyway, uh, we'd be able to more safely dose the therapies and so we sort of dove into that a little bit more because that message that i just mentioned was sort of what we eventually found out wasn't quite clear from that and as we sort of perfected our understanding of the problem and we talked to more physicians we would then sort of pitch it as this is what we're developing this is how it'd be useful when you talk about it that way it becomes a lot more clear how you're solving the problem so one of the you know if we take that back one of the difficulties with, you know, going to, you know, a group and saying like a physician, for example, and say like, hey, we have this, this device and it can do all these different things is then they have to think about, oh, could it be for this or this or whatever? But if you come to them after you've done a lot of this market research and, and say, this is how it would be useful, getting that confirmation and like enthusiastic confirmation, not just like, oh, this would be, you know, this would be cool. This is like, this would be huge for us in, in terms of managing patients. That's what really, you know, made us decide to pursue this path because it was not only an interest, but it was a huge enthusiasm um, among, you know, these healthcare providers. And I think a lot of times one of the difficulties with healthcare technologies is that you're providing a lot more new data to physicians and they don't want more new data. They're already overworked. Um, You know, there's a lot of physician burnout um, in, in recent statistics. And so being able to, what we're doing is we're actually providing them data that they're already collecting but in a much easier much more convenient way for the physician and the patient Um, and that allows them to say okay this fits perfectly into our workflow it ties in perfectly with all the other new types of technologies we may or may not be using but it doesn't restrict us to the very innovative physicians you know because if you talk to like the people at academic centers as an example tying back to, like, the researchers and things, a lot of the academic people really want to try new things and they're, like, at the forefront of technology, but that's only a very small percentage of, of most hospitals and health systems. And so for us, we wanted to develop a product that not only fit with them but also fit really well with the current workflows at, you know, a, a hospital here down, um, you know, outside Philadelphia or in, like, rural Arkansas. And so that's really where if we could improve the workflow of, of what they're currently doing um, and make it easier... For them, um, that to us was really a a win, and and we've you know found that enthusiasm to really you know help propel and amend to where we are now.
0: Sounds like your main strategy is like streamlining your effort into presenting digestible information, right? So that's pretty cool because I think you're right. People often get overwhelmed with information, and that ends up crippling their actions, right? And speaking of digestible information, uh, I'm going to use that as a pun, is I'm seeing you from across the table for the interview, and you have this great physique, right? And you're definitely the buffest uh, startup founder (laughs) I've ever met in person. And Aiden told me beforehand that you're very enthusiastic and has has always been very fitness oriented. and you talked about your fitness journey and your friendship with Aiden is based on a lot of athletic soccer, playing soccer, and working out together. And I know you two uh, still work out together. And and i I feel like there's like a stereotype with like tech founders and silicon valley just like these skinny dudes wearing t-shirts and jeans and just like coding all day every day and which means that there's that imbalance in nutrition intake and how they digest their information how they digest their food nutrition and whatnot and so yeah i'll love uh for you and aiden to talk about the nutritional industry
1: a little bit yeah i mean one thing that you definitely mentioned was that type 2 diabetes is somewhat reversible and that you learned, I guess, through personal experience like what to eat, what not to eat. Is there any, you know, big myths you'd like to dispel or kind of things that you think uh, would just make more, would make information more accessible to the common person uh, if they were trying to, say, get better in better shape or even dispel certain illnesses?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's one one difficulty is just that the way our industry is sort of set up is that, like, a lot of the more unhealthier processed foods are sort of at the front and center uh, of a lot of places, and it's and they're also on the lower cost side, whereas a lot of the healthier foods are, are more expensive. So it naturally sort of stratifies what people will be able to ha- eat and, and not eat, and I think that is one of the fundamental issues. And on the you know fitness side, I think, and it sort of ties into nutrition, um, is that I think, especially for startup founders, because the perception is you're working, like, tons of hours, you don't have time to do anything else. If you are doing other stuff, then you're not working in the company, and then that's not how it should be. But I think, uh, you know, not only in that, but in other industries where people are working long hours or, you know, are very busy, I think there's the perception that you can sort of use the excuse that you don't have time. For whether it's like preparing meals and like cooking food, or you don't have time to actually go to the gym. Um, and I think, or, or whatever exercise or athletic events you wanna do. Um, and I think it just sort of comes down to your incentives and how much you really wanna be able to do those things. And, and so I think, you know, for me, for fitness, for example, is, is a really important part of my, my life. And every day, like, um, I, I sort of use that, at, you know, the morning of being able to sort of wake myself up sort of just get in the groove of, of a daily routine. Um, and I think a lot of times it's just something which you sort of just need to you know, start doing and, and you know have that discipline. Um, and I think a lot of people don't believe that they do have it but if you if you look at you know a startup founder you know who's working uh, 80, 90 hours a week, they have the discipline to work on this company for such a long time. they certainly have it to be able to do, something in fitness or be able to make sure that their nutrition is, is on point or at least improved. Um, and so I think it just sort of comes down to you being able to consciously understand that you do have control over this um, and not use it as an excuse, but rather as something that you really will, will focus on. Um, and I think that's sort of been the mindset for me in that even though sometimes I feel like if I'm like traveling or something that I um, should be focused on just doing work stuff, um, really taking some time to, to exercise whether it's go for a run uh, you know lift weights really helps clear your mind and it, I think ultimately will allow you to be a little more productive um, than if you are just focused on everything It'll prevent burnout uh, issues I think there's a lot of benefits um, yeah.
1: yeah I can't agree more it's almost a funny conversation to have with people that don't work out because they, like, it's almost difficult to grasp how you could have more energy by exercising more, right? Like it's oh, what do you mean? You have more energy? You just you know woke up two hours earlier. Like waking up at five to get to the gym seems like it would exhaust you, but in reality, you're giving your body more energy through you know the constant exercise or just allowing it to get more in tune with itself. So that's something that personally I've found very beneficial. As I think we all three have work morning workouts has done a load of good, but I'm curious as to what the relationship with exercise and entrepreneurship, like I'm sure you met a lot of like high achievers, high potential uh, startup founders. Like, is it typically that gets swept into the back burner or are there a lot of people that are in tune with trying to perform at their best across the spectrum, whether it's fitness, nutrition, business relationships, or do you see a lot of entrepreneurs getting siloed into their specific you know idea or business.
2: Uh, I think it varies um, but I would say like there's definitely a lot of people that I know who are very much entrepreneurs and have that attitude towards building this really successful company and put that same attitude towards uh, being able to you know do an Ironman or being able to um, you know, climb a mountain or things like that I think there's definitely that mindset in a lot of people um, is definitely there I think it's more a matter of then being able to apply it to other concepts in your life so you know not only just fitness and nutrition but also sleep being a Mm -hmm. huge one and being able to see that you know getting more sleep is not a bad thing it doesn't mean you're not working hard enough it means that it's going to actually prepare you a lot better for the next day of work and the next day and because eventually it's going to catch up to you at some point uh, if you're sleep deprived and i think for me Um, in some aspects in, in high school and college, I sort of felt that if I was able, if like, I was able to run on less sleep, that it would be better and be more productive. Um, which I think now after that, you know, phase, I I think that was kind of dumb in hindsight. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I was still able to achieve a lot of the goals that I I wanted to and set out for, but, um, I think that eventually catches up to you. So I think building those habits and sleep being, I think one of the most important things, um, Really helps you in all aspects of life, Uh, and so just having that discipline to, uh, you know, go to bed early, or if you're going to be waking up early, or um, you go to bed late, if you're going to be waking up late. But just making sure that that's part of your habit as well. Because I think a lot of people will do fitness, a lot of people will do nutrition, and like focus on those things. But you're not going to make a lot of good progress if your sleep is not on point. I think that's sort of the third pillar um, for people in this space who want to be able to make progress in their physique, in their health, um,
0: and their mindset as well. So quick question. So I am interested in a little bit of the, uh, origin story of how your fitness started because Aiden might know this because you guys have been friends for a while because myself and Aiden, we started working out years and years ago because I was bullied because I was chubby and Aiden has a very similar story that acted as a natural catalyst for us to embark on this journey, right? To become fit. And of course, as we all know, fitness is a very addicting uh, lifestyle. And for as fit as you are, and despite all this motivation, despite all these necessities of the benefits of having fitness and nutrition, why did you start working out in the first place?
2: Yeah, so I think in my case, um, I had always been in sort of sports events, whether it's soccer or tennis. Um, those were areas which I you know, really enjoyed. And, and like my dad um, and my parents were very into that as well. They both do a lot of running. Um, and so it's something I kind of grew up with and it was – just exposed to but lifting actually came in in college um during my sophomore year i believe um i was sort of doing a hybrid of cardio uh like rowing and things like that um recreationally not on the team or anything um and then just sort of trying out certain lifting things i think in hindsight i remember distinctly doing some stuff with the smith machine i don't know what i was doing Um, (laughs) but there was something with that Um, i think just starting to do some body weight stuff like more push-ups pull-ups um and, uh, and then I also had some friends who I, you know, became friends with at the gym actually. Um, one guy who was a graduate student in chemistry and then one guy who was actually a, he's a postdoc I think, in sociology um, but also was a professor for a class that I ended up taking later, which was kind of cool. Um, but, you know, both of them had a powerlifting background. Um, and so they kind of, I, you know, became friends with them because we were part of the morning crew. Um, and this was in the summer uh, after my sophomore year and I think being able to learn certain lifts from them they were willing to teach me how to do you know squat a bench deadlift all that stuff um, really helped me you know gain confidence in the gym um, because I think a lot of times people are worried that when they go to the gym and they're trying to do some of these powerlifting or, or whatever lifts um, they don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing um, and I think you know, a lot of these are fairly technically difficult in certain ways, and you don't want to hurt yourself. Um, But then there's also the factor of just not wanting to look like you don't know what you're doing, um, or, you know, having other issues like that. And so I think having that initial sort of mentorship and and support to get started with lifting um, really helped me, you know, push forward. And I, I had other friends in college who were into it, but they were not, they did not really get into the same level that I did. And it became something that was is a habit um, that I you know really enjoyed and like being able to see your physique transform um, and just just makes you want to keep going and, and keep working out and, and be making progress and I think at some point what happens is like you you know become even very obsessive about it and then um, you know whatever I remember distinctly like going on trips and things, not not with like my family but trips like if I was going on a work uh, whatever related related trip. Um, or going to uh, visit a grad school or something like that. I would try and find a gym I could go to and like get in and get into work there. Um, and I think, you know, I've dialed it back in a sense that I've realized that like I'm not gonna lose uh, you know gains in a week or two weeks of, of taking off. And I think the mental benefit of taking a break sometimes is is much, and also the physical benefit um, is much more important and in the long run will be much more uh, beneficial. So I think my mindset has slightly changed. I've certainly tried to stay, focused on on certain goals with lifting. And I think it's now become um a sort of mix of physique oriented and also, you know, strength oriented. So really trying to balance both. Um but really trying to making sure make sure that I'm enjoying what I'm doing in the gym. I think like every now and then, you know, doing certain cardio, um, whether it's walking or running or playing soccer, um, you know, enjoying that and, and not feeling that I'm you know, limiting my progress in the gym because of that. Because you have to treat it as a marathon, um, not like a sprint. And I think a lot of people, and I've had a lot of friends who have sort of helped uh, get started in lifting, and I think a lot of times they sort of get frustrated in the first six months or a year. They're like, I haven't, you know, look. I don't look a ton different, I'm not making a ton of progress. And then say, you know, look back where you started and look where you are now. It, it, it takes time. Um, and I think as you just get more used to it, you realize it's, it's a journey and it's not something that will happen overnight. It's something that consistent effort, consistent nutrition, um, you put all of that in, then you will see results, um, and, and working hard. But I think it's just like, for me, I've sort of been able to take a step back and look at what my goals are, what I want to accomplish, um, with that. And it's really also helped my mindset and my approach to training, make it more exciting rather than sort of feeling like I have to get this done and it being more of a chore at some point. Mm -hmm.
1: I really love the point that you just made of it being an ongoing process, kind of something that you've scaled up through throughout your you know, college career since sophomore year, because um, that's something that's really important to point out is that it is a process, that you can't go five days a week after not working out for your entire life, because if you go that quick or make that much of a, a dramatic change, eventually you burn out, similar to how you said you had to learn the lesson about sleep and then learn the lesson about recovering correctly. Like you can't go from almost zero to a hundred and then and think that that a hundred is going to can tarry through. So I think a big piece of advice is kind of starting small and then allowing yourself to enjoy the process of it, right? You said you do the things that you like to do in the gym, not because you have to, or I'm sure you're not getting frustrated because <laughs> there isn't a gym out on a business meeting at yeah. this point. You know, yeah. you get to take a day off and then get back to it when you really want to. So it's kind of, I think crucial to point that out of it's you know kind of an ongoing journey where you can continue to scale, continue to get better and build rather than just go 100% and then burn out and then not work out for another five months.
2: Yeah, and I think that's something which uh, even in just general training, I think people coming into the sort of fitness industry, getting, getting acquainted with it, oftentimes will think, if I'm going to do a, like a lifting session, for example, that I need to be completely exhausted by the time I need to go like 100% I need to go to failure with everything. And that's really not the most beneficial. And I think the difficulty is that a lot of times there are certain, um, you know, at certain gyms or things where the fitness instructors have that mindset as well, because if the client has that mindset, and, you know, they feel like they're not getting their bang for their buck, if they're not, completely exhausted, the instructors will have that mindset as well because they're incentivized to keep the clients uh, first and foremost. And so I think it, it's unfortunate that that is sort of perpetuated that, like, you know, if you're doing fitness, it's about, you know, just being able to balance that and, and really putting in the work and working part of, uh, of improving progressive overload, all that stuff, which you commonly hear, but also making sure you don't sort of kill yourself every time um, because you know, making progress is a marathon. It's not going to happen overnight. And the harder you work, um, you know, in, in one session, uh, will make a small difference, but it's more about the consistency and, and staying healthy and, and all that stuff, uh, rather than just a single instance.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you think about fitness has most, uh, trans, uh, transferred into your business journey? Like, do you think it's the rest and recover or work hard, recover kind of progressive overload or what? about fitness has most uh, gone into your journey as an entrepreneur?
2: I think a couple things. One is um, just maintaining these habits. So making sure that you keep to strict habits and being able to use that to stay disciplined in in the things that you're doing at work um, in our company. But I think the other thing is also having goals outside of work. I think like a lot of times, um, especially in entrepreneurship, people are really focused on their company, which rightly so, but it's also okay to have goals on, on other things, um, that you're working on, whether it's, um, in particular relationships, whether it's in, uh, things like fitness or, you know, specific sport or, um, you know, project, side project you're working on. Um, I think in my case, being able to, uh, focus on the company, but also focus on fitness goals and trying to achieve those goals, um, it's pretty cool because then I have like all these different things to, to focus on and I'm not sort of tied down by like if fitness is not going well, but the company is going well, or if the company's not going well and fitness is going well, there's still sort of that balance where you can still take, um, you know, keep up a good attitude and, and be able to see that like everything is not, you know, going downhill or, or you know, you have things yeah. that you can focus on that are going well um, and that you can look to uh, when certain aspects of your life aren't going so well. So I think it just like, being able to have that balance and being able to um, be aware that there's a lot of different things that you can focus on beyond just a company. I think it's just sort of a mindset thing rather than actually the amount of work that you have um, for a particular job.
0: You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify every Monday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. Follow us on Instagram at Discover More Podcast. And please share this with your friends and everyone that you know. Thanks for listening to another episode of Discover More, where we intend to discover more life through intentional dialogues. And we truly appreciate everyone who have made it until the end. Till next month.